start out by going into 1 Corinthians 14 and talking about, I want to change kind of how we run our discussion here so we can get more 2 Corinthians studied and still be able to do a good job of interacting. So I want to give you my new plan. I got this one this morning. I woke up this morning with a uh, idea. I won't attribute it. I want to attribute it to God. <laughs> but uh, I did. I woke up with a. Oh, <laughs> I know how. In a sense, it really is from God because it's based on uh, what Paul said in First Corinthians 14. Now here, in it talks about what prophecy is in a local congregation. And so, if you look at verse three, it says, "The one who prophesies." speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation or comfort. Okay? And then he goes on to give instructions about prophecy in the congregation and gives permission for people to do that, whoever may. You may all prophesy. Now, uh, we published an article about that which defines prophecy as bringing forth valid implications and applications of Scripture. And if you haven't read that article, it's on CICMinistry.org, and you scroll down, and there's two articles, one that I wrote and one that Keith wrote, both on this topic. And I gave evidence that that view of prophecy in the church was held by the Reformers, by Luther, by Calvin, by Matthew Henry, and various people, and I believe that's the correct interpretation. So that being the case, what we're doing here is opening up the scripture we're studying, and I'm doing exegetical work and trying to be a good teacher so that you know the meaning of the passage. Okay, the, part, the first thing you have to establish is the meaning. And if you took Ryan's hermeneutics class, the meaning is determined by the author of the scripture, not by the reader. Okay? So once you've established the meaning, that meaning is authoritative, it's binding, and then every, the meaning is singular, but the implications and applications are many. Okay? Now, if my definition of prophecy is correct, that it is to bring forth valid implications and applications of Scripture, then what we would like to do in this Sunday school class is actually prophesy which is what we're hoping that we are doing. And so what that would mean is that I would give the exegetical work on the passage. And so the way I I would like to try, we'll start with this Sunday, so that we can stay more focused, is I'll do one verse and give the cross-references, explain the Greek if I need to, explain the meaning, explain the issues, and then we'll talk about that one verse. And... And it says that we prophesy, we should do it by two or three. Remember that in here? Let, let's, uh, let me find it here. 29. And let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. Now, let me tell you what it means by a prophet there. That sounds like a big thing, like, oh, that must be Elijah or Jeremiah. No, it's functional terminology. And it would apply to anybody who would speak unto the church in edification, exhortation, and comfort. And the edification, exhortation, and comfort come from applying the one meaning that's been determined as we've done the exegetical work. And, and of course, 
included in that is if anybody feels like my exegetical work is wrong, it's valid to question that. Yeah, that's a valid judgment. The only a binding teacher is the Holy Spirit who inspired the Scripture. Okay, so I'm a fallible teacher, and my exegetical work isn't always necessarily correct, although I work very hard. Uh, may, I don't know whether that's a, just because I don't like being wrong. <laughs> uh, yeah. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> talking to my wife. <laughs> she knows I don't like being wrong. <laughs> but that you can turn not liking being wrong into a good thing if you study harder. <laughs> All right. Now, so that's a valid thing. And then, but what I would like to do is at least until we get to the last 10 minutes of this hour, that whatever you have to say should be an application or implication of the passage we're studying. Okay? And, and so we'll do that by two or three. So we'll have the verse, two or three prophecies, bringing out valid implications and applications, and then let the others judge. And that's something we do do, you've probably noticed. And what, what is the judgment? The judgment would be if, if we have, have reason to think that someone has made an, an implication or application that doesn't logically follow from the text. That's what judgment is. Yeah, so then we'd say, well, we don't think that's correct. And don't anybody get their feelings hurt if that happens to you. Please do not. And we've been doing this for years, and I, I, actually I've been very, very pleased with how most people have taken it. I've seen people that have been corrected on their implication or application come up afterwards and say, thank you, I, didn't, I, I, hadn't, I never thought of that. Because we're here all here to learn, Okay. So when it's talking about prophets, it's a functional terminology that one who speaks to the church for edification, exhortation, comfort. And we may give an exhortation that doesn't actually follow from the text that we just read, and then that's the judgment. And then that's part of the discussion. So the two or three speak, others judge. Then we go to the next verse. So I was thinking earlier in the week that just lecture for 40 minutes and then talk, but for some reason that didn't appeal to me because then, then you're taking away the prophecy part. But if we do it the way Paul said, it'll stay under control. Okay? So let's, uh, let's have a prayer, and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday to gather and to open up the Scriptures together and to do what we were just talking about, to exhort, to encourage, to comfort, and to apply the truth of your Word into our own lives and to help one another grow in grace and knowledge and in love and so forth. And Lord, we do again pray for the scattered flock around the world, and may those dear saints also be encouraged and comforted and strengthened by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now, 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 17. It says, Therefore come out from their midst to be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. Now this, I believe, came from Isaiah 52 and verse 11. Isaiah 52 and verse 11. Robert, could you look that up to, make, to confirm? That it's, it's very, sometimes the citations in the New Testament of Old Testament verses, and we'll see that this morning, sometimes they are very 
literal in the sense that it says exactly what it says. Sometimes there are more allusions, not in exact literal, and sometimes it follows the Septuagint. In fact, that's more the norm rather than the Masoretic text. And sometimes a citation will actually take two different verses and conflate them into one statement from two different places. That's very common in Paul. But let's look at Isaiah 52:11. Go ahead and read that. I'll read 11 and 12. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Yes, and in the context, it was a prophecy about what would happen later when they went into Babylonian captivity, that when, they, that when God brought them back out of Babylon, they were bring, to bring the, the sacred vessels, and that God would protect them, and that they would go back to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild the temple. So it's a prophecy of what's going to happen at the time of Nehemiah. But the application that Paul's making is taking a similar situation where uh, the church in Corinth had been saved in the midst of pagan idolatry with cult meals, fornication, and all of the wickedness that happens in, in that situation. So he's calling them like the people of Israel coming out of Babylon and bringing what was dedicated to the Lord out with them, uh, he's calling the people out of the pagan world of idolatrous worship, as we saw in verse 16, what agreement is the temple of God with idols? The answer is none. So come out and be a people to the Lord. And so the, the continual emphasis throughout the two Corinthian epistles is to flee from idolatry, to get out of the world of idolatry and come into a relationship with God that's not tainted by the idols. What else was I going to suggest here? I just have one other verse. Keith, could you look up Ezekiel 20 and verse 34? And I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out. Yep. So God was going to gather his people from Babylon. And so Paul applies the Old Testament passage about Israel to the New Covenant people in the New Testament. And there's a way that they have to also come out and be separate. But as we've talked about the last four weeks, I believe, the separation of the New Covenant people is not as radical as it was under the Old Covenant, because God did away with the ceremonial laws that made them really separate. As I explained before, the reason that there's less separation under the New Covenant is because the separation under the Old was based on genetic purity. In other words, Israel had to be preserved as Israel, as the actual descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, so that Messiah would come from the seed of Abraham. And so by making all the ceremonial laws as stringent as they were, it created a huge level of eccentricity. And that eccentricity that God purposely made kept them from intermingling with anybody else. But under the new covenant... Under the New Covenant, 
those laws were done away with. The dietary laws, the ceremonial laws, the Sabbath law, the circumcision law, so that the new covenant people would actually integrate into the world with the gospel. Because we don't have to be genetically separated like Israel did. Okay, we go right into the world and penetrate because that's how God's plan was to spread the gospel. One more thing I was going to say, and then I'll open this verse up for discussion. One more thing. One of the things that is the most difficult in this, and we've seen this as we discuss, 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 is to then, because there's less separation intended under the new covenant as the old, that much is obvious, then how do we apply this? And some would always tend to want to apply it in a way that they create a new, how would you say it, a new law that would create the same kind of eccentricities that the old covenant had so that the Christians could not be integrated with anybody else. Now, I just saw an example about this. I was in a dentist chair for an hour and a half this last week, and while I was there, they have this thing now where they make the tooth right there. You know, they do this thing with this little computer thing, and then it goes into the mill. So while the thing was working, I was, had time to read. Here's an article about that Texas cult, right? It's been in the news. Now, there's the people who practice separation, right? And as it showed pictures of these women, and, of course, the issue is what's gonna, what are they going to do with these kids? They have a polygamous cult, and every woman had a little house in the prairie dress on. Every last one. They all had exactly the same dress, and everything was strictly controlled, strictly separated. Everything they did was separated from the world, and that's their way of keeping purity, other than they had gross perversion and immorality going on in there. All right? Young girls forced to in a polygamous marriages against their will. So the fact is that looking like little house in the prairie and putting up walls and not letting yourself anywhere near to the world doesn't actually sanctify anybody. And so I thought the juxtaposition of this quaint prairie dress and gross immorality was shocking. Okay, now I'll open up this verse to discussion. Yes. Isn't another reason about the, the laws, the Hebrew laws, and, and Jesus uh, removing the Hebrew laws, because the temple worship and the, the ceremonial laws that and the Sabbath really pointing to Jesus, and as he came and became the true fulfillment of it, he is the true high priest, he is the temple, he goes to the true temple in heaven, that all that that pointed to was now manifest in the man who is God, Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. and therefore the pointers that used to point to him are irrelevant because now we see the true thing. Therefore, we don't need to have Sabbath laws because he's brought the true Sabbath in giving us rest before our Father mm-hmm. because our sins are forgiven. He's brought, he is the high priest, so we don't need a priestly system. We don't need a Levitical system when a greater priest, the one that never dies like Melchizedek, has come and and offers sac- his own sacrifice. Yeah. That, that's a good implication. And as a matter of fact, Paul makes that same application in Colossians 2 when it talks about, do not, let's turn to that as a good cross-reference. Because there were people in Colossae who wanted to create a new 
version of separation by making laws. In their case, it was to supposedly keep people away from demons and bad fate in the stoichia. But in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, that's once for all, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, nailed it to the cross, and disarmed the rulers and authorities. Okay, then, the therefore, verse 16, therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or a festival, a new moon, a Sabbath day, uh, which is a mere shadow of what to come. And let no one keep defrauding you of your prize, delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. By the way, Clinton Arnold's book on, on the Colossian syncretism has cha- a huge, several chapters just on what this word means. What is the worship of angels here? And he determined, based on all the evidence from inscriptions and amulets and so on, that what this actually was was not direct worship of angels, but the veneration of angels who were called upon to protect them from evil forces. And they'd have these things that they'd wear on their body. They would have a list of angel names. And some of them were Hebrew angel names, and some of them were pagan angel names. And they thought that by bearing the names of the angels as like patron Saints, I mean, in a lot of ways, it would be like Catholicism. You know, you wear your, your, you have a saint that you hang. Well, they were doing that with angels, venerating angels. Okay, then it says here, taking a stand on visions. Then it goes on, verse 20, if you've died with Christ to the stoichia, why are you living in the world? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are... Appearance of wisdom and self-made religion, self-abasement, severe treatment of body, but are no value against fleshly indulgence. Because we have Christ, and he's canceled out the certificate of debt. 3-1? Have Keith read it. I don't want to find it again. So after all of that explanation, Paul goes, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. So we don't need to worry about all the things of the earth that were there then because Christ has come, he's fulfilled it, and we're we're fine. The the Hebrew laws are no longer applicable. Okay, so that being said, then what we're saying is to come out and be separate means to to cease and desist fellowshipping around pagan idolatry. All right? How far do you take that in a culture that worships sport, worships self, whatever else we're dealing with now. Well, I think that the way you take it is from asking God to remove idols from us, not just trying to go out of the world. Because as you know, I've told the story before, I, I lived in a group that took this to an extreme. Well, and you did too in, in a different way, didn't you, Dick? I was in a group that took it to the extreme where the leaders became lawgivers and they made laws that were binding on all of us based on very loose association of Scripture. For example, in this group that I was a part of, if you were going to Bible college, you were in religious Babylon. If you were going to a regular college, you were in educational Babylon. And if you had a job, you were in economic Babylon. And basically, if you did anything besides quit your job, sell your house, drop out of school, 
and go join this group and give, yeah, and give all your money to the guy who said you were in Babylon. If, if you do anything, well, but we, we had the gospel, so it was a more of a Colossian problem than a cult one. But when we got in there, then we were out of Babylon. So this was utter and total separation. And in a lot of ways, it separated us from our earthly families as well. Because the eccentricities were so great that even our families didn't know what to do with us. All right? And that is not God's intention. That's not what he meant here. It doesn't mean you can't get an education. It doesn't mean you can't go to college. It doesn't mean you can't have a job. And it doesn't even mean you can't go to the Twins game. Aren't you glad, Brian? But what really is sin is whatever somebody else likes to do that I don't. Go ahead. Resisting compromise uh, comes into play, especially when it comes to the church, because once you compromise on something small, then you get the snowball effect that we see today. Yeah, that's true. I think a valid implication, a very valid implication, is that the local church must keep the idols out of the church. We cannot allow idols into the church, whether idols of man's philosophy or idols of pagan practices, and so on. And I'm telling you, idols are coming into the church. Case in point. This starts your end. I'm showing everybody an article from Saturday's Star Trip. It says, Green Churches. Green churches. And I don't think you're talking about the paint job on the outside. So we had Earth Day. <laughs> I was interviewed by Brandon House. What day was Earth Day? Whatever the case, I think it was Earth Day. It was, I was on Brandon House's radio show this week, and he says, isn't today Earth Day? I said, I don't know, and I don't want to know. And he laughed. <laughs> he says, good, we'll talk about something else. <laughs> Here's, here it starts with this quote. I see Earth Day as a spiritual thing. This person drove from Coon Rapids to the Episcopal Church in Minneapolis. God made the earth, and now it's up to us to protect it. Everybody here is for the same purposes about the earth. And at the service was Muslims. For proof of unity, all we had to do was look at St. Mark's service, which included prayers by Christians, Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, American Indians, and the rabbi had to cancel. Uh, and it says here, <laughs> lucky him, the act, the act of faith for this age is to love the earth. Mother Earth becomes the new goddess to be worshipped in the church. Now, is that what Paul meant by come out and be separate? Absolutely not. He wants us out. So the, the big problem is that under the guise of things like this green, neo-pagan green movement, we're bringing pagan idolatry into the church. And the walls have been removed. And I would say that our number one responsibility, the elders of any local church, our number one responsibility is to make sure that the flock of Jesus Christ is safe. That they're safe from the pagan ideas that come in from the world, and that they're saved from pagan practices and pagan thinking, so that we have our minds renewed, that we might prove what the will of God is, according to Romans chapter 12. This is not keeping people safe. 
Okay, let's go to the next verse, verse 18. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, here's one of these passages that I was telling you about where Paul pulls, he, he pulls together pieces and ideas from various Old Testament verses and, and makes it one citation. And it's not even 100% sure where it came from. Part of it came from 2 Samuel 7.14, which Hebrews 1.5 cites as Messianic. I will be a father to you, you'll be a son to me. That's part of it. But sons and daughters comes from somewhere else. And so I read a number of scholarly resources on this one and came to the conclusion, I think the best material I saw was that, was that one scholar thinks that this is sort of Paul's commentary on Deuteronomy 32. Okay, Deuteronomy 32 is a song of Moses. Let's turn to that. The evidence that scholar gave is that Paul in 1 Corinthians uses terminology out of Deuteronomy 32, like the rock. Okay, the rock is terminology from there. That's in 1 Corinthians 10. And the sons and daughters also comes from Deuteronomy 32. So let's all turn to that and I'll read it. Let's start with probably about verse 16. 32, the Song of Moses. And I'm going to start at 16. No, I want to go up to verse 15. That's the beginning of a paragraph. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. There's that rock analogy that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 17, they sacrificed to demons. Remember, we were looking in 1 Corinthians 10, and it says that the, that the pagans sacrificed to demons. So here's that same terminology. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known. Deuteronomy 13 says that if any prophet comes and describes to you a God you have not known, even if their sign and wonder comes true, don't listen to them. But here is an indictment for gods they have not known. In other words, ones that weren't the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom your fathers did not dread. New gods who came lately. <laughs> What's wrong with a new god that came lately? <laughs> well, the only true god has been around forever and ever and ever. So if a god came lately, it definitely isn't God. We talked about that in theology class. That's theology 101. Okay? Your fathers did not dread. Then 18, you neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the god who gave you birth. Notice rock and god are synonymously parallel there. Verse 19, and the Lord, Yahweh, saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. An allusion to Numbers 14. Then he said, I will hide my face from them and I will see what their end shall be, for they are a perverse generation, sons in whom there's no faithfulness. By the way, that's a verse where the term generation is used pejoratively like it is in Matthew 24, contrary to the... Uh, preterist. Verse 21. And they have made me jealous with what is not God. What is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are not a people, and I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation, for a fire is kindled in my anger and burns to the lowest part of Sheol and consumes the earth, and so on. So God is pronouncing judgment because of their idolatry, 
and their unwillingness to stay faithful to the covenant and so on. Now, I have another passage here. According to Barnett, this passage, 2 Corinthians 6.18, is an integration of 2 Samuel 7.14 and Isaiah 43.6. So, Dick, could you look up Isaiah 43.6? The sons and daughters idea, it comes from citations in the Old Testament. Sometimes in the Bible, the, the, the term sons is used generically to mean all Christians, regardless of gender. And that's, very, that's the most common usage. Sons meaning the whole group. Or when it talks about the brethren, it's talking about everyone, male and female. You have a sister, sistren. <laughs> the sisters are included. Now, sometimes it's, it uses more inclusive language. and says sons and daughters. And, but it shows us that that's what the meaning is in all the cases, unless the context demands that it's only males that are being talked about. So, uh, Isaiah 43 and verse 6. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Okay. So he's bringing sons and daughters, and he becomes a father to sons and daughters. Sons and daughters. Here, I'll just quote a little bit from uh, Dr. Barnett. Now, now follows the first of two promises. I will receive you, which is based on Yahweh's word given to the people in exile through another prophet of the exile. That was in Ezekiel 20:34. Did I mention that one? Yeah, in the last verse. That was verse 17. And then, um, and I will welcome you. That was verse 17. And so God is summoning his people out of the cultic uncleanness of the Gentiles. He promises to welcome them as they come out. Come out and be separate, and I will receive you. So that is um, analogous to God taking his people out of exile in pagan Babylon. So we come out of the world and into a relationship with God, and we become sons and daughters of God Almighty. So God is the father of believers. Uh, Joanne, could you look up Leviticus 26, 11, and 12, and Alice, Ezekiel 37, 27? Okay, uh, Leviticus 26, 11, and 12. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. Okay. I will be your God and you'll be my people. We talked about that last week. Ezekiel 37, 27. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Same promise. And I remember last week we looked in a Revelation and found it ends with, I will be their God, they will be my people. That's the, that's the ultimate covenant promise is for us to be the people of God, to be his sons and daughters forever. That's what God promises us that's so important. So because of that relationship that he's a father and we're his sons and daughters, therefore we cannot participate in pagan idolatry in whatever form it may be found. And I showed you that thing about the green church because I think that is probably the biggest inroad at the moment for paganism into the church. 
And I'm going to write an article about it because Dick finally gave me permission. <laughs> okay? I'm, uh, if you didn't hear this, I, don't, I think he has a website. How many heard David Wheaton's radio show yesterday? Was that good? All right. If you haven't, you want to find that show. I think it's on his website. Um, okay, today at 5, it airs again. Turn your KKMS 980. A.M. at 5 today and listen to an excellent show. Now, the guy he is interviewing is a guy by the name of Dr. Calvin Beisner. I met Calvin Beisner when I was at a think tank in San Diego, California. And he's an expert on this material. And the fact is that we are being sold a bill of goods in order to bring this green is simply code name for paganism. All right. Now, Proof of that is that the, the, the leading neo-pagan is Al Gore. And I read his book. Okay, I'm making an application to this verse now. Come out and be separate. We should not allow this stuff into the church. All right. Now, Al Gore's book, 82, so he was an early innovator, Earth in the Balance, or was it 92? Who remembers? I think it was 82. I read that entire book carefully because Jan and I did a show about it that was filmed by public broadcasting. And I wanted to make sure that everything we had was factual in case it got broadcast on Channel 2 and around the country. turns out they didn't use that footage. But in reading the book, Al Gore cites a pagan worldview. And he says that the whole earth in the universe is like a hologram. It's like a hologram. And the hologram, all the little parts of it have the entire image in the whole, according to Gore. I'm not an uh, expert on holograms. And he says, therefore, the whole universe, and particularly the earth, is a holographic image of God. So God is in everything. Now that theology is known as panentheism. Pantheism says God is everything and that everything that we see is an illusion. In other words, and that's uh, this Ken Wilber I've been studying. My last chapter of my book is about Ken Wilber. Ken Wilber is a pantheist. And he says that ultimately Atman finds out it's one with Brahman and all the illusion of categories go away. They're just God. But the more popular pagan theology in America is panentheism. So that therefore you preserve the idea that the universe is not exactly God, but it's this holographic image of God that's throughout it. Now, that neo-pagan worldview is coming into the church under the guise of such things as global warming. And, and I'm going to write about this. The idea that, and here's what happens, and this is why it's so damaging, we've got to come out and be separate. Here's what's damaging. As soon as you accept the neo-pagan worldview, you also accept that human beings are not especially image bearers of God. In Al Gore's worldview, humans do not bear God's image in any more than rats or trees or rocks, because the hologram is universal. So humans no longer have any special status according to the neo-pagan worldview. All right? Now, 
What happens? And this is, uh, you got to listen to David Wheaton. Five o'clock, don't forget. Because this Calvin Beisner is brilliant, and he is fighting this, and he's got websites and stuff to help us see the danger of this neo-paganism. So as soon as we're no longer image, image bearers of God in any special way other than the rest of the universe, humans become expendable. And the worldview of what's called deep ecology, the worldview is this, that the problem with the world is human beings. Because the human beings have got out of step by actually using their rational mind and creating technology. And so by plowing and cultivating and burning and building and and making lumber and all the things that human beings do, we are destroying the goddess. We are throwing the goddess out of kilter. And the goddess is the earth. So therefore, the big problem is the human beings. And the only solution to being a net producer of carbon dioxide is to die. Literally the truth. Every human on the earth is going to be a net producer of carbon dioxide. So what they've done, I hope this is a valid application because I'm taking some time at it. um, I believe that it is because it's right on my heart and mind after listening to that radio show. Here's the deal. They define sin as creating carbon dioxide. That's sin. And you can't repent of the sin. All right? And according to, and listen, listen to David Wheaton and Cal Beisner, and they were talking about this, and it was the same stuff that I wrote in an article for Christian Worldview Network. They came to the same conclusion. If you accept that definition of sin, then God commanded people to sin. He said, cut down the trees and build a temple. Bring the, the cedars of Lebanon. Burn sacrifices in your temple. Uh, Put that carbon dioxide into the air. So God, in their strange way of looking at reality, is commanding men to sin. And so what happens is you are given this sense of guilt. If you listen to this stuff, just listen to it. It's pagan. Don't believe it. But if you listen to it, you'll just start getting guilt. Guilt, guilt. Guilt, guilt. If you're American, you get a triple dose. All right? If you're Chinese, you have some guilt. If you're American, you have a big batch of guilt. This huge guilt. And the guilt is over something that you cannot personally repent of. All right? So therefore, the idea is to turn your minds and souls over the neo-pagan uh, thinkers and let them tell you what to do. They give you the guilt, and then they take just a little bit away from it back if you serve their agenda. I am declaring that this is a a transgression of coming out and being separate. To allow this into our pulpits, into our churches, and into our minds is to embrace pagan idolatry. Now, to say this, I'm not telling people to pollute. I'm saying this, carbon dioxide is not pollution. It's not pollution. It's part of what God created the world, so it looks like it is. The irony is they say we want to be green, but we don't want any carbon dioxide. You've got to get rid of the carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide creates the green. Uh, see, I'll tell you, let me, let me say something. Let me say something about this. When you embrace paganism... You become stupid. 
No. Okay. I'm not saying that to, to imply that all of these people don't have high IQs. Al Gore may have a, I don't know how high his IQ is, but you're looking at the world through a lens that's so distorted you can't see what you're looking at. And, you, and you're believing lies and myths, and you're allowing people to feed you a bill of goods that is inimical to biblical Christianity. Now, the other thing they want you to do is get rid of your eschatology. They hate dispensational, literal Bible prophecy. That is the most loathsome thing in the minds of the neo-pagans. Because in their mind, anybody who believes that God is going to judge this earth is going to likely not be a very good caretaker of Mother Earth. Now, on the contrary, on the contrary, in history... The opposite has been true. Christians have always believed that God is going to come and bring judgment. And mostly, Christians have believed that 2 Peter 3 is true. God is going to burn up this earth and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Christians have believed that for centuries. Now, Western civilization, based on Judeo-Christian understanding, is where people have taken care of the environment. Where, where else do you go where you see green parks that we spend money to preserve? And we, and we, and we make sure that we don't dump uh, uh, sulfuric or sulfurous oxide, what, which one is it, SO2, SO, uh, out of our coal uh, burning because the sulfur goes into the air, gets into the water, it turns into acid. You don't even hear about that anymore because it was a legitimate pollution and it was a right to deal with it, and we spent money to get that stuff out of our air. Rightfully so. But as Christians, we're willing to do that because we're, we're given authority to care for the earth. Right? But not to worship it. And to not erase the distinction between man created in God's image and, and four-legged things that are not created in, in God's image. So uh, Vishal Mangawadi, who also was at that think tank, Vishal was there, Calvin Beisner was there. Vishal Mangawadi has written about this, and pointed out that in, in nations like his India, he's an in, from India, Vishal's from India, he said in nations where they have had this pagan worldview for centuries, they've destroyed the environment. They universally destroy their own environment. And he says making earth into a goddess does not protect it from man. And he says India is proof positive we have a, a polluted destroyed environment in my India, and they've been worshiping it for years. But you go over to Western civilization where Christianity used to influence us, and we believe the truth of the Bible, we actually take care of our environment. And we actually care about it. So here I'm the big problem today. I did not see it on topic. But after hearing that radio show, I, was, I could not help. Okay, Troy. Uh, this is interesting. MacArthur had a message a few months ago on a nation abandoned by God. And a few of the signs of that, he was saying, first was a sexual revolution, then a homosexual revolution, and then they'd worship the creation rather than the creator. Right, that's in Romans 1. That's where it goes. You worship the creation rather than the creator. I was just going to point out, maybe we don't want to do it, but you had promised you're going to do a homeschool thing this weekend. This week. Okay, let's go. Let me reread our verse, and then we'll have that. That's an application we want to talk about. And I will be a father to you, and you'll be sons to me, said the Lord Almighty. I was telling about how. 
In my past, we were commanded to get out of all educational facilities or systems, be they Christian or non-Christian. We had to get out of them and come into this group. And, of course, then what happens when you do that is that group tells you everything. You have only one source of information, the group. They control your inflow of education. How many, well, Keith was in the same group. How many people dropped out of college? I didn't join myself. What's that? I didn't join on my own volition. No, yeah, you were dragged in by your parents. But there were, there were many people who dropped out of college for fear that they were going to be polluted by Babylon. And they were studying things like engineering, uh, accounting, whatever they may be wanting to do, architecture. Nope, you can't do that. That's Babylon. So here's a question then. And I, I want to preface it by saying this. I am asking us as God's people to be kind and loving to one another. All right? Because this can be very heated. And I want everybody here to show respect for other Christians. Some people, in fact, there's a guy who berated me in the most severe way I think I've been berated in 10 years um, with just hateful venom because I refused to command every single person in our church to homeschool. And if I did not command them, then I was guilty, and the blood was on my head for every one of those kids that went to some other school besides homeschool. And I said, all right, you've pronounced your thing, go. Go away. Go away. Go curse somebody else. Now, sometimes we have a desire for something that seems good, but it isn't always in our best interest. And that's a desire for the leadership of, the, of a church to create complete uniformity by, by law-giving. And that can mean everything from where we go to school to what we wear to what kind of cars we drive, whatever we'd want to do. And the more that you do that, you create eccentricity and you create isolation. So here's the question. Is the manner and place in which parents raise their children and teach them what they need to learn in life, math and reading and so on, is that a matter of Christian liberty or is it something that is to be governed by ecclesiastical law? That's the question I want to ask. Okay, Troy is the first brave soul. <laughs> well, I've had, I've got a, we've got a daughter that's homeschooled and other, four other children that are in public schools, but the Bible says train up a child in the way he should go and he will not depart from it. So that's our responsibility, to, no matter whether they go to public school or a private, you know, or a home school. Yeah, so what, I think we should agree on this. Wherever our children are attending school, we are responsible for what they learn and what they believe. And if they're being taught by, a, 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 whether a secular school or another Christian, something that's false or harmful, we are responsible to intervene. I agree. And yeah, we have three children, and they've been homeschooled more or less. We send them to public school for certain classes. And the responsibility that I have before God is to educate our children, make sure they're educated in the best way I know how, according to a Christian worldview. But that doesn't mean that they can't uh, interact with uh, a pagan culture or interact with the pagan Ideas. In fact, there's no better place to understand pagan ideas than going to a pagan, uh, pagan educational system. <laughs> and uh, if we try to insulate them so they never see that, 
we're kidding ourselves because ultimately they're commanded to get jobs, they're commanded to work, and unless you set up a compound yeah. and, com and contain compound that Compound in Texas, yeah. Compound in Texas, you're going to end up with coming into the real world sometime. And I think it's something we have responsibility for, but to command that you have a, uh, an obligation to send them to, to homeschool, if you don't have giftings in homeschool, you've already relegated your children to something that's less than a full education. All right, that's uh, Jackie. Here's somebody younger. That, that's a good person to hear. Younger than us, anyhow. Okay, go ahead. I was homeschooled from kindergarten all through my high school years, and then I went to uh, a secular college. Yeah. And I know that, you know, how I conduct my life, how I speak, is radically different from the people I go to school with. And that, that separation, then they want to know what's different about me and okay. why, and why I act the way I do, why I don't you know, use the language they do. And it's, it's nice for me to be able to share who I am that way. Okay, good. I actually, as a matter of fact, homeschooled children are statistically exceptional. Uh, but I think part of that is that the parents that have the ability to do that are, are, are fantastic. Okay. The reason I don't, and I think it's a great thing to do if somebody's gifted to do that and do it well, but I don't want to make a law that might, uh, what, what is it that you quote Garrison Keillor? There's nothing. Uh, There's no situation so bad you can't add a little bit of guilt and make it worse. <laughs> All right. So by, what I don't want to do is if somebody's in a situation, let's say a single mother that can only survive by working and would be impossible to homeschool if I make it a canon law that that person is a sinner, then I've had, okay, you had a bad situation. Now we've added guilt to it. And I'm not willing to do that. Anybody else? I'm willing to hear people who want to say that they have to do this. <laughs> I admire people that homeschool, and I, you know, if it's at all possible, it's probably the best way to go. When we were raising our children, nobody homeschooled back then. The issue was Christian school versus public right. school. And we were really berated by a lot of people because our children were in public school. I had to work full-time at the time. But the other issue was I don't have the IQ. Well, I think you're smarter than you give yourself credit. But. No. no. I, Bob really has an IQ, high IQ, so does Jessica. I'm different. I don't understand things and can't communicate in the way that they do. For me to have stayed home and homeschooled my kids, they would not have gotten the education that they got. But we still had to, when they came home, refute things oh, yeah. that they heard. We didn't, we didn't relinquish our responsibility by just saying they got only what they got in public school. We were constantly, okay, what did you hear today? What was taught? And, and we refute what they had to say and give them what we thought was the truth. We didn't advocate our responsibility as parents, but not everybody could homeschool. It would have been impossible for me to do that. I right. did not and have, we couldn't afford a tuition at a private I don't, school. We couldn't afford the tuition for uh, a private school, but I did not have the skills and the capability to homeschool in and of myself. Diane Bukowski here, I don't know if she wants to say anything, but she was something else as far as making sure the school kept their 
heads on straight. If anybody of you were in those meetings, I apologize. <laughs> you, you have to be there. You have to be on them all the time because they forget that there are people with other opinions. They forget that they're not the only ones. And, and um, there was a lot of teachers that came up to me privately and told me that they were Christians and they didn't like the direction the public school was going, but they didn't think that there was any uh, parents there that wanted it to be different than the public school was saying it had to be. So they were going along with the program only because the Christians hadn't spoke up. Okay, so and you did, though. Yes, I did. <laughs> she spoke up big time. So, and another thing, let me say something as, as Pat is, wants to say something. I think we have an obligation as the family of God to help one another. And I, th- I thank God that that's happening. Right now, as we speak in that room, we have our teenagers being taught a Christian worldview. And, and that sort of thing that we can do corporately, bring in like a John Wheaton from, from Crown College who teaches these things and teach a Christian worldview to our children, whether they're homeschooled or Christian schooled or something else, they are being given the way to be able to go into the world and fight the battle. Okay? And if we have people that are single mothers or they're, they're just impoverished so that it would not be possible to do the ideal with education, the rest of us should help. I mean, we should we gather together. That's where we get Sunday school. That's where we get teachers. That's where we get other parents in the world that we can step in and help. All right. Now, here's a homeschooler. I just wanted to say, um, as a homeschool mom, that um, we won't always necessarily have the privilege of homeschooling. Um, I think that it's certainly possible that within my children's schooling, even we could lose that privilege. I consider it a privilege, not a not an obligation on my part. And uh, if that does happen, then we have to trust God mm-hmm. and that um, God gives us the grace for whatever situation we're in, whether it's the single mother or the children who just aren't able to, aren't around all the time. Like they're with one parent one time and then the other parent half mm-hmm. the time. There are mm-hmm. lots of situations in which homeschooling just isn't possible. And God's grace is sufficient, and he gives you the grace to unteach the secular humanist worldview and reteach the truth um, in that situation. Yeah, so we've had the same policy since 1982. We had, uh, in 82, we had the uh, teachers and principals of of a Christian school that attended our church. And there was a lot of people who felt like all of the kids should go to that school, to that private school. But we made a decision that we're not going to make ourselves lawgivers and that the parents can, between them and God, where they send their kids. Yes. I am a teacher and an educator. That's my profession, uh, my gift, if you like, from God as well. But I think we should all have a choice. Um, and that's the problem at the moment because going on from what the previous speaker said, um, California is right at this moment trying to stop Uh, the homeschool option, and we should really be able to have a choice over how we educate our children. But it's all our responsibility as parents um, to uh, show them the truth. 
from our Christian yeah. worldview. By the way, even in the New Testament, they, they talk about schoolmasters. Yeah, and uh, the Bible doesn't suggest... Yeah, Paul was trained under Gamaliel. So they, they, the, the Jewish community helped each other in their education. We've gone over, I guess. Uh, but understand, again, my position. I have empathy and for everyone, and I want you to be able to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And I want our children as a church to grow up, to serve God, and to be well-educated. And we want to support you in that. But I cannot bring it upon myself to become a lawgiver and tell every family they have to do the same thing because I said so. I cannot do that. And if you wish that I would, I'm sorry, I just cannot do that. Okay, God bless you.